here. Well, it is good to be back in front of you guys. It's a blessing. Uh, rejoice in the Lord. Always. And again, I say, wow, it has been a blessing. The sabbatical was a gift, really, to us. And I haven't preached here so long. They got it set for someone shorter. Look at this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move this up. The joys of coming back. Other people use your pulpit and they make it shorter. All right, sweet. Well, we're starting a new series on the book of Exodus, and I'm excited to dive in. Uh, We're going to be in this for the rest of the summer, and we're going to be looking at the first 15 chapters of Exodus, which is really all about God's deliverance. Next summer, we're going to dive into the second half, which is all about God's holiness and its provision as they traveled through the wilderness. In creating my long-term preaching calendar for North Park, uh, my plan is to preach through the entire Bible by the time I retire. So with that said, uh, that means sometimes we're going to have to go at a little bit of a quicker pace. So today we're going through two whole chapters. Now with that, uh, when I first started prepare, I had about 20 minutes just on the book of Exodus, and then I had no time to do chapters 1 and 2. So then I condensed it, and I condensed it, and finally, I just put a video, and I sent that out on our Facebook page and our email last night, um, and then also put a link to an introductory course uh, by Gospel Coalition that has a ton of that stuff So I encourage you to do that and get all the background of Exodus. But today we're actually going to jump in in verse 6. So let's pray and then we'll open God's word. God, it is a blessing to be up in front of my family. Uh, Lord, to sing together and to worship together and to be together. Lord, it's such a blessing. And I'm so thankful to be here today. I'm thankful for the gift of the sabbatical and now the gift of returning to a family that I love. And Lord, I pray that as we open your word together that you will change us, that you will move us, that you will challenge us, that you will conform us to your will and to your purpose. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been going through something difficult and wondered, does God even care? Does God hear my prayers? Is God even listening? Is He here? Well, the Israelites found themselves in that very place. They had become enslaved. They were mistreated. Their sons were being murdered. And they wondered about the promise that was given to Abraham. When would it come? They found themselves asking, is God even here? Does God care about what's happening to us? Is God going to intervene, and when will He intervene? And maybe today you find yourselves asking a similar question that they asked way back in those days. Maybe you find yourself wondering if God is who He said He is. If God truly will come to your rescue. Maybe today listening to this sermon is going to be the most important thing you do this week because you need that answered. Is God here? Now we're going to jump into Exodus in verse 6. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. So if you open your Bibles at the beginning, just go a little bit, you'll find Exodus. And it was one of the five books of Moses. But before we jump into Exodus, I want to rewind about 600 years 
back to a guy named Abraham. If you remember our sermon series from a few years ago, in Genesis 15, God was talking to Abraham. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that for 400 years... Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go on, go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And then Genesis ends with Abraham's son Isaac. Isaac had a son Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons, Joseph, was his favorite. Joseph was sold into slavery uh, because the brothers hated him. But God did that in the midst of all that to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, to save the nation of Israel from the famine in the promised land and bring them to Egypt. And so during those 400 years, they became strangers, they became enslaved and mistreated. But in this covenant, we see that through all of it, God had a plan. See, God was going to punish Egypt. He was, they were going to come out, they were going to grow, they were going to have great possessions, and they were going to return to the promised land. Not only that, the Amorites in Canaan there, they... At the time, their sin hadn't risen to the full amount. God was not ready to punish them. And by the time the Israelites came back into Canaan, God was going to use the nation of Israel to bring judgment on the Amorites. Now in Exodus 1.6, it, it picks up the story. It says, Joseph and all of his brothers and all the generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. The first... Part of the 400 years was going very well. In fact, there's more than a a million Israelites here at this point. God had tremendously blessed them. They came with 70 people, and now there's over a million. And they're growing, and they're multiplying, and things are going really well, and they could see why God brought them to Egypt. But when you read that prophecy, you recognize there's a time coming. They're going to be enslaved. They're going to be mistreated. And so that time comes in verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. God's blessing hadn't gone unnoticed by the Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh was afraid, and it makes sense. The Nile was famine-proof. The Nile is the biggest river in the world, and because of the Nile, when famine came, they still had access to water, and so they still were able to be prosperous. So every time a big famine came, people would flock to Egypt. In fact, some scholars think one-third of the population of Egypt at this time were immigrants. And so the Pharaoh is looking around, seeing all the Israelites, he's like, What happens when another nation comes in and the Israelites go, hey, we're going to pair up with them. See, that had already happened in Egypt's history. The Hyksos people from the Canaan area, Semites, had come in and taken over Egypt. And Pharaoh was afraid the same thing would happen to him. So he comes up with this plan. Verse 11, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. 
So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The more they abused them, the more they grew. See, Pharaoh thought if, if just, we just mistreat them and we abuse them and we make them slaves, then uh, they're not going to have energy for other things to produce kids. But that wasn't true. Now, I think the problem with reading a story like the story of Exodus is we're so familiar with the story, we, we just read it as a story. And many of us have seen The Prince of Egypt by whoever wrote Disney or Pixar or whatever that is. If you're older like me, you saw the, the Ten Commandments back in the day, uh, that long, beautiful movie. If you're younger, maybe you saw the one with Christian Bale that was nothing like the Bible. We've heard these stories. We've read these stories. If you do a Bible reading program, often you're going really strong through Genesis and Exodus. And then once you hit Leviticus, that's when you really struggle. So, But if you do that every year, maybe you've read this story 30 times, 40 times, 50 times. And when we're so familiar with a story, we don't stop to think how people actually felt. Imagine being an Israelite in this situation. You were, things were going really well. You had good land. You were having lots of kids. Everything was great. And one day, this Pharaoh comes along. And all of a sudden, your whole life changed. Imagine being one of the men or one of the boys. Every day, getting up early going to this city to build all these buildings or to work the fields. And the whole time, every time you pause, every time you stop, you get whipped, you get beaten, you get yelled at. You go home every day exhausted and miserable. Picture being a a woman and watching either your father or your husband or your grandpa go to work in hard labor every day and probably, because of how they were mistreated, wondering if they were going to come home that day. Now picture being Pharaoh. You're looking at the city. You're looking at your great empire, and you're afraid. What do people do when they're afraid? They try to protect their power. Now imagine being the Egyptians. You're worried. What happens if they rule over us? We have all this privilege. We have all this stuff. We could potentially lose it. We need to do something. I'll leave it there. But Pharaoh's plot doesn't work. The king, so the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shipra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during the childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. Now, Pharaoh's intention with this was that if the Hebrew babies were all women, they would marry Israelite men and they would lose their sense of identity. So he goes to these two women who probably weren't the midwives for all of the million plus Israelites, they're probably the administrators of all the different midwives. Now, often people would become midwives because they couldn't have babies of their own. And so they would go and be midwives and help women in their pregnancy. And so these two midwives were asked to do the impossible. When this beautiful baby is born, what I want you to do is if it's a boy, kill it. Can you imagine being these two ladies? 
One, you're afraid if you don't do this, Pharaoh is going to have you killed. Two, you don't want to do that. So they take the risk. Why? It says because they feared God. They did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Now they're going to tell a story. We don't know how much truth there is in this story. But they say, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. They lie. But God honors their protection of these babies. Verse 20, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Again, most likely barren women. They honored God, they believed God, and God provided them with their own children because of this. Now in the midst of this story, are you catching this? First, they're enslaved. They become more numerous. Secondly, Pharaoh tries to commit infanticide, and they become more numerous. The more he ratchets it up, the more the Israelites grow. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile, but let every girl live. To quote one commentary, Having failed at slavery and infanticide, he finally resorted to genocide. But no matter what he did, Israel kept growing. Pharaoh came to the end of his rope and just said, Look, if you're an Egyptian and you see a baby boy, throw it in the Nile. They might be thinking, One, why would... I mean, that's drastic, but, but why would a normal Egyptian person... He doesn't say the army. He just says, if you're an Egyptian... Throw the baby in the Nile. Why would they do this? One, unfortunately, fear leads us to do a lot of irrational and wrong things. The Egyptians were afraid of losing their power, afraid of losing their status, afraid of losing everything that they had built. And fear is a strong motivator. And in our climate, oftentimes, both sides of the spectrum tend to, to, to grab at our fears, to try and let us live by fear. But also, it's quite possible that they saw this as a religious thing. The Nile was ruled by the god Osiris, and Pharaoh could have said, look, if you want to worship Osiris, he requires a sacrifice. Throw the babies in the Nile. Now again, it's easy to read this story and emotionally disengage. In our culture, we have these wonderful things called ultrasounds. And when you're pregnant, you can see whether it's a boy or a girl. And then you do some kind of ceremony where you cut a cake and it's either blue or pink, or you, you shoot a confetti cannon and it's either blue or pink, or you, you have a flying, you know, there's, I mean, it's crazy all the lengths that people go to. We just did this. We got together and we said, hey, we're having a boy. That was our gender reveal. I'm not, if you do a, a great gender reveal, that's fun. I'm not criticizing you. Um, but imagine me and parents for nine months, you're praying let it be a girl. Lord, let it be a girl. Because if it's a boy, someone is going to come into my house and they are going to take my child and they are going to carry it to the Nile and they are going to throw it in there and drown my 
baby. Can you imagine the fear? I can't fathom this. I can't fathom the trauma a parent would experience watching their baby drown. I remember when Josh was born, the joy and and the pleasure of that moment. And I can't imagine all of that being shifted to a moment of tremendous fear and anxiety, worried about how will your baby survive? Is there any way you can hide them? Is there any way you can protect them? And worrying every single day, the moment the baby cries, will someone be walking by? The moment the baby cries out because he's hungry, you're, you're trying to muffle his sounds and worried because at any moment, an Egyptian could just grab your child and throw him into the river. I can't fathom that kind of fear. But that is what the Israelites were facing. But there's a plan in this. God is going to save them. Chapter 2, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now your translation might say beautiful. It's a, a very common Hebrew word, but I think when you look at the context of the rest of the Scriptures, I think it's better to translate it favorable or special. It seems that Moses' mother and father had some inclination that there was a greater purpose for Moses. Hebrews 11 puts it this way. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. But even with that strong faith in God's providence and protection, can you imagine what was going through their minds? Every time he was teething and got fussy, every time he was hungry, I can't imagine. Verse 3, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And the Hebrew language here, the things that Jacobet are doing, they're all seen as, as this gentle, loving, careful action of a mother seeking to protect her son. But interestingly, what she puts the son in, the, the Hebrew word used there is only used one other time. It's the word ark. And the only other time it's used is in Noah's ark. So she puts her baby boy in the ark to save him from the water. In a similar way that God saved mankind during the flood, God would save Israel through this ark. Now the Nile is the biggest river in the world and in many places it would have been raging current. But she places him along the reeds. This would be the calm, calm part of the bank. And we don't know this, but... She places him in a specific place. The sister hangs off and watches from a distance. It's quite possible that she knew this is exactly where Pharaoh's daughter would come and bathe. It's quite possible she's hoping what does happen will happen. So the Pharaoh went, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. This was common for them to bathe there. It was also common for these ritual uh, religious washings, ceremonial cleansings. 
And uh, Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened and saw a baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. And she said, this is one of the Hebrew babies. Now, according to some historians, you know, in, in, in our culture back in the day, when someone didn't want a baby, sometimes what they'd do after they had the baby is they'd drop the baby off at an orphanage or drop the baby off at the front porch of a church. There's some historical record of, of women who felt that they couldn't provide for their babies, of, of putting them in the river, hoping someone and praying to Osiris that someone who uh, would have the means would find their baby and take care of them. It's quite possible Pharaoh's daughter was barren. And she was going to worship Osiris and she saw this baby and she saw him as a gift from the gods. As a gift from Osiris. But she notices something. He's one of those Hebrew babies. So what's she going to do? Is she going to obey Pharaoh's edict and just throw the baby in the water to drown? Or would she have pity on the boy? Now, I love the boldness that happens next. Moses' mother places him in the reeds, and Moses' sister is over here, you know, hiding, watching what's going on. And as soon as the Pharaoh's daughter identifies that that's a Hebrew baby, Moses' sister comes in with boldness and says, Hey, I, I got this idea. Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? The baby needs to be nursed. The baby needs to be fed. Should I just go and get someone who could nurse the baby? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, go. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. This is astounding to me. Think of God's sovereignty. As Jochebed gently places the baby in the river, wondering if she's ever going to see her son ever again. Not only does she see her son again, Pharaoh's daughter comes and says, Will you raise your son? And guess what? I'm going to pay you to raise your son. Israelites would have been struggling financially at this point. She pays to raise her son. Now, typically, uh, babies at that time would be, weaned, would, would, would be weaned after three or four years, often in the fifth birthday. So for the first probably four years of Moses' life, he lived with his biological parents. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, that was a common name in that time for Egypt. Uh, you'll see it at the end of a lot of things. It means to born or to bear. So Tut Moses uh, was born the god of Thoth. Ramses, that's actually Ra Moses. Uh, that's actually the phrase, Ramsey, uh, born of the son of sun god Ra. But in Hebrew, Moses means he who draws out of. So she named Moses, he who draws out of, the guy who was going to draw the Israelites out of Egypt. We see God's sovereignty on all these elements. Now Moses grew up in Egypt. Acts 7 says he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. According to scholars, he would have been trained in linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, and the fine art 
of diplomacy. In other words, he'd be trained to lead. But they didn't know they were training him to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. But during his childhood, in those early formative years, he was trained in the wisdom of the Lord. Now, according to Acts 7, we're going to skip forward until Moses is 40 years old. In verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were and he watched them in their hard labor. Now, he went out is the same phrase used to describe the Israelites leaving. So on that specific day, he could have gone out anytime, but he went out to watch. Now, interestingly, this word does not mean like observe. It's only used one other place, and that is when Hannah, or sorry, not Hannah, uh, blanking our name right now. Wow. Okay. Ishmael's mother. Uh, Hagar. I had the right first letter. Uh, Hagar was looking. Ishmael was dying of starvation. It said she looked at her son and wept. Moses went out to look and emotionally engage in what was going on with his people. And so... He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now again in the language, what we see is the same phrase used for the Egyptian as it is for Moses. So in other words, the Egyptian was beating a Hebrew slave to death, and Moses felt like he had to intervene. But he knew what he was about to do was not right. So he looks to the left and looks to the right. If we ever have to do that when we're doing something, we know it's wrong. Unless we're wrapping Christmas presents. Then it's okay. But other than that, if we're looking back and forth, seeing if anybody's watching, we're probably doing something we shouldn't do. And so he kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. And the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The language here implies that Moses is shocked. You're, you're both Hebrew people. Why would you fight each other? Look at what the Egyptians are doing. Why would you do this? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. <coughs> Acts 7 says that Moses thought his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue him, but they did not. Moses was trying to be their deliverer at that moment. But he tried to deliver by doing sin. Moses was not ready to be the deliverer, and the people were not ready to be delivered. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went in to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now you know in the Scriptures, if you're at a well, something good usually happens at the well. And something good did happen, and we're going to fast forward a little bit. Basically, there's these seven women, seven daughters that are being accosted by these uh, shepherds, and Moses protects them because that's kind of who he was, a, a deliverer, a rescuer. And he gets water for their flocks, and then they go home. And they tell their dad what happened. He's like, why'd you leave him at the well? Bring him here. And he takes a woman as his wife. And we fast forward to uh, verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
So God looked down on the Israelites and was concerned about them. They were in a place where there was no hope. Sometimes we get to that place too. What did they do? They cried out to God. The psalmist in Psalm 130 was in that very same place. He wrote, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. When we're in our lowest moments, when everything has gone wrong, the best thing we can do is cry out to our God. We wrapped up our series in Romans 8 this spring, and we learned that even when we don't have words to our prayers, when life is so bad that we're, we're crying out to God, but we can't even come out with words, that God hears our groans, and the Holy Spirit interprets our groans into prayers, that God knows what our pain means, and He hears our heart. And so the Israelites groaned and cried out for help, and God responds with four active Verbs. God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. First, he heard the groaning of the Israelites. He hears our prayers. Psalm 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to the cry. When we cry out to God, he hears us. Second, he remembered his covenant. What this doesn't mean is that God somehow forgot his covenant, and now all of a sudden he remembered. That's not the language here. What this means is basically he enacted, he applied his covenant. He said, now is the time I'm going to act on this covenant to save the people. I promised Abraham that for 400 years they would be here, but now I'm going to raise the deliverer and bring them out of the promise Land. Third, he looked on the Israelites. God sees what you're going through. He sees your pain. And last, he was concerned for them. I love this quote I read from Douglas Stewart. The theological issue here is not whether or how people suffer. The issue is, does their suffering go unnoticed? The answer is no. If it does not, and indeed the one doing the noticing is the true, omnipotent, and loving covenant God, his people can properly surmise that their suffering may well be part of a plan that is a suffering with a distinct beginning and a distinct end, a hardship understood by and watched over by a sovereign God who will not let it continue without good purpose and result. In the words of Romans, we know that all, in all things God works together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God has a purpose in his pain. There's one thing I've learned in years of ministry that's been really helpful, and this is that God always heals, but that doesn't mean he always heals in this life. There's an eternal healing that we as believers get to look forward to. So sometimes we go through things, and God may heal our physical hurts, and we may be healed of cancer. We may be healed of whatever ails it. I, I have some medical issues and I've prayed for God to remove those. He hasn't. 
Sometimes God chooses to allow them to sustain. And the same happens with physical trauma, emotional trauma, all these different things. There are some times where God doesn't remove the pain, but God has a purpose in our pain. Now let's rewind a little bit. Have you ever been going through something difficult and you couldn't see how God could be working in it? You're asking God, are you there? Are you listening? Do you even care? Well, the Israelites found themselves in that very same place. They were enslaved. They were mistreated. Their sons were being murdered. There was no hope in sight. And they cried out to God. And God heard them. He remembered His covenant. He saw them. And He had concern for them. Which leads to three points. Three things I want you to walk away from today. All three of these are on your bulletin. First, God doesn't promise a life of ease. God doesn't promise a life of ease. God made a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, he said for 400 years they were going to be in Egypt. And that they were going to be enslaved and mistreated there. But God had a plan in it. God was going to grow the nation through it. And God was going to bring them out with great possessions. And wherever we go through hardships, an important thing to do is this. Look at the life of Jesus. If you're here today and you wonder, does God love me? Does God care? about what I'm going through. Know that He loves you enough that Jesus willingly, purposefully, lovingly, with joy, came down to our earth, experienced loss as His earthly father passed away, experienced mocking, experienced rejection, had a friend, one of His twelve, go away and, and, and betray Him. And then, just like the Israelites, was whipped and beaten. And like many of them, beaten to death. Our God is not distant. Our God loves us enough that He chose to go through that. To offer eternal salvation. So that when we don't know if whatever pain or suffering we're going through has a specific end date while we're here on earth. Some of us will go through hardships and they will come and they will end and we will look back and see what God was doing in the midst of that. And we can praise God for that. Others may suffer with something for the rest of your life. But God has a purpose in that as well. As you suffer, remember the Savior that suffered for you to offer you eternal life. If you don't know this Jesus, don't wait another day. Today. He's calling you. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, come to give life, but not just life, life to the fullest. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan offers all of these alternates that seem to bring fulfillment. But Jesus says, that's all a lie. I come to give life and life to the fullest. The lie of the enemy is that Jesus promised an easy life. And life is all about comfort. But Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. 
During the hardships of the Israelites, God grew them numerically no matter what Egypt did. God protected Moses. God prepared his people. And God had a plan, which leads to our second application point. No one can thwart God's plan. Pharaoh, maybe the most powerful man in the world at that time, tried slavery. It didn't work. Tried infanticide. It didn't work. Tried genocide. It didn't work. Moses sinned, tried to take the plan into his own hands and by killing the Egyptian, and that didn't work. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, and yet God even used that to bring the nation of Israel safely to Egypt. See, no one can thwart God's plan. Joseph put it this way, What you intended to harm me, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. No one can thwart God's plan. You can't, others can't. We know he is sovereign and we know he is good. And lastly, God is sovereign and working in the background. When you look at all the facts, look at just Moses' life. He was born and he should have been murdered. It said he sat in the very river where he was supposed to be murdered, saved by the very woman, the daughter of the person who had the edict, Saved by her, and even though he was supposed to be thrown in the river. Then raised by his mother, who was paid to raise him. And then trained to be a leader, to lead the nation out of Egypt. We see God's divine fingerprints on every single moment in this story. It's amazing. When we can't see the big picture, we can know that God is sovereign and still in control. Why does God allow suffering? Well, sometimes we do have answers. In this story, we have the answers. God was working his plan together to bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt with more people and more possessions and set them up for a future. Sometimes we don't get the answers, but we can trust that God is still sovereign in control. So maybe you've found yourself asking the question today, God, are you there? Are you listening? Do you care? The answer from this passage is clearly yes. He sees you, he hears you, he knows you, and he has a plan. The question for today is, do you trust him enough with the results to continue to walk in faith when you might not get what you want or when God might not remove the hardship from your life? My prayer is that we do. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, please come talk to me after. He will change your life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. Lord, we read this story, and I can't imagine the pain and the suffering and the hardship that the Israelites were going through in these moments, the fear, the anxiety. But in all of that, God, you were still sovereign and still in control. No matter what Pharaoh did, he couldn't stop your plan. And you had a purpose in the middle of their pain. So, Lord, we thank you. We pray for anybody that's in here today or watching online that has tremendous pain right now, tremendous suffering, and they're crying out and they're saying, God, are you here? Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Do you hear my cries? And that they can know that you do. Lord, we just pray that you'll reveal yourself in ways that they see that you are near, that you draw near to the brokenhearted, that if we draw near to you, you draw near to us. Lord, help us to live that out each and every day. In your name we pray. Amen.